Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Hey, guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. Just a few housekeeping tips, as you usually do at the top of the show. If you need to get a hold of me, I know I keep forgetting to give out my email it is barry at bostonconfidential.net. We've gotten a tremendous response on these last two episodes we did on the FBI corruption in Boston, starting in the 1960s with the murder of Eddie Deegan in Chelsea, Massachusetts. The FBI sent four innocent men to prison for homicide, putting two of them on death row, and they were hoping that they were executed, knowing they were innocent. Welcome to Boston. All right, guys, I'm going to try to tell you a little bit about the players in this Deegan murder and how they all played out. I'm going to start with what happened to H. Paul Rico, perhaps the most corrupt FBI agent in the history of the United States. Rico orchestrated this Deegan setup after Eddie Deegan, a local gangster, was killed. He was actually killed by Joe Barbosa and Barbosa's best friend, Jimmy the Bear Flemmy. Jimmy the Bear Flemmy was the, I believe, older brother to Stephen the Rifleman Flemmy, who would pick up the family torch with the Winter Hill Gang. Apparently, one of the other guys, Ronnie the Pig Casario, was also present that night. Deegan was killed in Chelsea, Massachusetts. But Barbosa was being recruited as an informant against La Casa Nostra by H. Paul Rico. And I believe at that time, I don't even think Bob Bosa was aware of this. Jimmy the Bear Flemmy was already an informant for the FBI. So it's just a circle of nasty corruption and backstabbing. But this guy, H. Paul Rico, I mean, he was king FBI guy in Boston. He knew everybody. He was actually from Boston. He went to Boston College, as would John Conley. He actually trained Agent John Conley in the use of handling informants and everything else. So I said this before in another episode. If you brought this script to Hollywood, you'd be laughed out of the office because it's so implausible, right? The FBI putting guys on death row, hoping they go up and smoke in the electric chair. Unbelievable, right? Yeah, this is Boston. So believe it, believe it all. It was nasty, it was intentional, and it happened every day back in those days. All right, guys, let me tell you a little bit about what happened to H. Paul Rico. H. Paul Rico won every award an FBI agent could ever receive. Monetary awards, plaques, all the BS. And today, actually when I was doing research for this case, there's a site, something like FBI Stories or something. They really defend H. Paul Rico 
and it's almost comical. I'm not going to give the web address. It was just so badly done. I think it's a collection of former FBI agents who throw up cases and stuff like that. FBI stories. Yeah, Google FBI stories and H. Paul Rico, and that might come up. I'm not comfortable giving the URL address as the information just seemed shady to me. But H. Paul Rico goes through his career with the FBI, putting two guys on death row who were innocent. He also perjured himself in a trial involving the godfather, Raymond Patriarca. I think I had told you guys in a previous episode, Patriarca and Jerry and Julo were involved in a trial where a bookmaker was murdered. I believe the bookmaker's name was Rudy Marfreo or Manfreo. Regardless, he got out of line and those guys ordered a hit on him. And H. Paul Rico in that case also utilized informants. And this guy was Red Kelly. And if you remember that name, it was from that old episode we had done on the Plymouth mail truck robbery, right? So Red Kelly was suspected in that. He was never convicted. And Red Kelly, if you remember, I told you in that episode, was kind of a hitman, jack of all trades for Raymond Patriarca. And I think they had him take care of the bookmaker. And Angelo got indicted as well. And I had told you previously, which was incorrect, that both Patriarca and Angelo beat the rap. Angelo did beat the rap. Patriarca did not. He ended up with a 10-year sentence. I think it was voided after a certain time, though because the case just fell apart. And H. Paul Rico, who again, perjured himself all over the place there. But they give applause for perjuring yourself if you're going up against basically the mob, right? And that's the whole genesis of these cases. J. Edgar Hoover and whoever came after him gave the FBI basically an ultimatum. You take care of Italian organized crime by any means necessary. And these means were necessary. Innocent men on death row, making deals with Joe Barbosa, lying with Red Kelly in federal court. I think one other thing I forgot to mention to you guys, in 1956, H. Paul Rico arrested a young James Whitey Bulger in a bar in Revere. And again, I think somebody gave him up, but H. Paul Rico said he had just stumbled upon Whitey Bulger in a bar in Revere, and he was wanted for bank robbery out in the Midwest. And H. Paul Rico puts the cuffs on him, and James Whitey Bulger ends up in Alcatraz, believe it or not. And there are some theories out there that this 1956 arrest and his, you know, following punishment kept Whitey Bulger out of the Irish gang wars. There was an Irish gang war between what became Winter Hill in Somerville and a Charlestown crew, I believe, led by the McLeans. And then there was also a Southie faction and all that. But there was a bloodbath, a war over that. And Whitey missed all of that and came back at the tail end. And he ended up with the leadership role with Howie Winter and the Winter Hill Gang. So that's that. Let me tell you about H. Paul Rico himself. He finishes his career and retires in 1975. And after that, he takes a job. It's almost comical. 
he takes a job with World High Lie. And at the time, that business was owned by a guy by the name of John Callahan. And Callahan had solid connections to the Winter Hill Gang. In fact, they had, I believe, staked him some money to buy this at a certain point. But regardless, World High Lie had a skim going, right? Highlight, it's kind of hard to explain. It's these basket. It's almost like a lacrosse. I believe it's a Spanish sport, but it's heavily bet on, especially in Spanish communities. Like Miami was a headquarters for this. And the people who were into Highlight were just heavy gamblers. So the skim was great for the Winter Hill. I'm talking millions. And that's what they do. They put H. Paul Rico in there as head of security. And everything's going well until a new owner comes in, and his name is Wheeler, Roger Wheeler. He was a millionaire businessman who bought World High Lie, and he noticed right away that the money was off, and Winter Hill was killing this place. They were taking about $10,000 a week in cash from World High Lie, and in terms of gangsterism, that doesn't sound like a hell of a lot, but don't forget this is the late 70s, 80s. In 1981, $10,000 a week was equivalent to 32000 And if you did that for the whole year, 52 weeks, that's equivalent in today's money to about $1.6 per year. And everybody's getting paid on it. Winter Hill, H. Paul Rico. And it was just a sieve bleeding money. And they loved it. And they weren't going to let it end. And their connection to this was John Callahan, who was a degenerate gambler, they say, who was in Hawk to Winter Hill. And there was another murder connected to this as well. That was the murder of Brian Halloran down in what is now South Boston Seaport District. Halloran had went to the FBI looking for protection and Conley tells Bulger, hey, Halloran's going to squawk about World Highlight and everything else. Halloran was a hanger-on, kind of a lughead, not super well-liked. So Whitey Bulger takes a machine gun to him, puts on a wig to look like another gangster, Jimmy Flint. Kevin O'Neill's also present on that, spots Halloran coming out of a bar room, and they kill him, and a civilian by the name of Donahue, I believe his name was, just happened to be giving Halloran a ride home. But just to continue with H. Paul Rico, he gets out in 75, and now he's head of security. It's almost funny for World High Lie. So they get word from Callahan, John Callahan, who was their connection in this business, that Wheeler, Roger Wheeler, he was a straight arrow. He was involved in some type of tech companies and stuff before that. This is 1981. And he, he had just purchased a great business. There was a ton of money in this high lie. But pretty soon, Winter Hill gets a call from H. Paul Rico that Roger Wheeler is doing an audit of the books of World High Lie. And he tells Callahan, Callahan tells Winter Hill. And imagine that a company you just bought, World High Lie, and there's an FBI agent there, former decorated FBI agent. And he turns to me, says, you know, I've done an audit here and the books are off. 
H. Paul Rico just is like feigns ignorance. Like, oh my God, are you serious? Let's uh, call the police. Instead of calling the police and the FBI, he calls Winter Hill. And Winter Hill dispatches notorious hitman John Moderano to Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma, to take care of Wheeler. So Moderano gets out there to Tulsa. And before Wheeler's murdered, there's some phone call asking about him. I don't know if it was at World Highline or one of his other businesses, but they pretend to know Wheeler, saying, hey, is Roger in or is he at the golf course? So the secretary, the receptionist, thinks, hey, they must know him. He says, oh, no, he's playing a round of golf. So they knew exactly where to find him at the golf course. They get to the golf course, locate Wheeler's Cadillac, and John Moderano just waits for him to come out with the golf bag. He comes out with the golf bag, and John Moderano just blasts him. And Tulsa, Oklahoma doesn't have a lot of organized crime hits, so it's a total mystery. It's a total mystery to everybody but H. Paul Rico, because H. Paul Rico gave information on Wheeler to Winter Hill, specifically to John Moderano. And he knew what Moderano did to people. He was a hitman. He was a stone-cold hitman for Winter Hill. So that gave H. Paul Rico the distinction of being the first FBI agent in history to provide information to organize crime in order to facilitate a homicide. Imagine that. So that's 81. And guess what? It's a coincidence that the FBI doesn't investigate this case and the Tulsa PD is stuck with it. But they kind of track down John Callahan through this and they go to the FBI shortly thereafter and they want to know about Callahan. They want to know about Winter Hill in that group. And you know who they get on the phone? John Conley. He says, yeah, there's nothing to worry about. Winter Hill doesn't have anything to do with anything with World Highlight. They wouldn't know what to do. So I believe H. Paul Rico takes retirement from the World Highlight Association, Wheeler's Business, and ends up fully retiring down in Miami Shores. And he stays there, and he must be in Miami Shores, which is just south of Miami, Florida. And he must follow this FBI, Winter Hill, La Casa Nostra corruption falling apart because he was eventually indicted in this case, but it just simply came way too late. He was indicted in October of 2003, guys, and he ended up dying at age 78 in January 2004. He served less than a year or so in the joint, and he ended up dying of cancer in there. But in the interim, by the time he was indicted and died, he had testified before Congress. And again, I had told you this in previous episodes. One congressman asked him, do you have any remorse for all this mayhem, basically? And he says, what do you want from me, tears? And I wanted to put that in the show notes, guys, but I can't find it anywhere. If anybody out there can find it, send it to me at... Barry at bostonconfidential.net. It's something to see because after Rico says these words, you can hear a pin drop. Like, yeah, FBI agent Rico, we would have liked some tears from you or something, some regret. 
So Rico passes away, you know, a year later without getting to trial. So question marks abound on him, but he is probably best known for being the most corrupt FBI agent in history. All right, let's get on to Vinny the Bear Flemmy, Stevie the Rifleman Flemmy's brother. Vinny the Bear Flemmy was not indicted in the murder of Eddie Deegan, despite the fact that the FBI, 24 hours after the homicide happened, did some type of fax or telefax, they called it back then, to J. Edgar Hoover, the boss of the FBI, saying that the homicide was conducted by Barbosa, Vinnie the Bear Flemmy, and Ronnie the Pig Casario. So they had all that information right there, right in front of them, 24 hours after it happened. So he is best friends, Barbosa's best friends with Flemmy, and he just doesn't put him in the jackpot. He puts all those innocent people and some mafia people that had crossed them into the jackpot. It was all a crock. Maybe they did put a hit on Deegan for doing that, right? But it's all corrupt, right? Because H. Paul Rico orchestrated that. He told them all what to say. So Barbosa does go on to testify in that case. But let me tell you what happened to Vinnie the Bear Flemmy. So Vinnie the Bear Flemmy and his best buddy, Joe Barbosa, they were probably good for 30 or 40 murders between the two of them. I think they attributed 26 homicides to Barbosa. And I'm going to tell you about some of the ones that Vinnie Flemmy was involved with. He was a vicious, vicious guy. If somebody told you on the streets back in the 60s that Mr. Flemmy was looking for you, it wasn't a good thing. It probably wasn't going to end well for you. He was feared. So in the weeks and days leading up to the murder of Deegan, the FBI knew Vinnie Flemmy was looking for him. He was trying to set him up because there was a contract. They had been paid like 7500 bucks according to Barbosa, but they were looking for him. The FBI knew it. One of the most grisly homicides in all of this was the murder of Francis Regis Benjamin. They called him Frank, Frank Benjamin. He was a longtime friend and associate of Stephen Flemmy. And this comes from Kevin Weeks, who was Whitey Bulger's right-hand man. Weeks had said that Somehow, Benjamin had run afoul of first Stephen the Rifleman Fleming and then his brother. But Kevin Weeks goes on to say that Benjamin had stolen money from the Flemies. And when Vinny Fleming found out, he shot him in the head with a 38, but then he sawed his head off because the bullet he thought was still in the guy's head, in Benjamin's head. So he saws it off. Just very brutal, but they were a very brutal group. And man, the Flemies between them, just killers, murderers, men, women, just didn't matter. Judge Gertner, in her decision on the civil case for the Boston FBI, read aloud and into the record an FBI memo from the FBI about Flemie, Vinnie Flemie. And it says, I quote, the agent handling the informant believes information obtained from other informants and sources that BS919PC, 
that was Vinnie Flemmy, that was his code number, code name, had murdered Frank Benjamin, the guy I just told you about, John Murray, Teddy Deegan, we knew that one, and Iggy Lowry. So the FBI knew they were going to make him a top-level echelon informant, and that's what they were trying to do. They knew he killed Deegan, and they still kept going with him. Can you imagine that? All those people he murdered. Judge Gertner just excoriated them after this. It's a good case to read if you want to do some mob research. So Fleming was in and out of jail, but in 1975, he was serving 11 to 18 years. I believe it was at Walpole State Prison. And at this time, kind of like these days, there was a soft on crime mentality. And they began giving murderers like Vinnie Fleming weekend furloughs. So this murderer would leave prison on a Friday, wouldn't have to come back until Sunday or Monday morning, right? As soon as Vinnie Fleming got this furlough, he headed for the hills. And he wasn't apprehended until three years later, way up in Maine. But he gets recaptured in October 1979. Vinny the Bear Flemmy dies. I believe he was in Norfolk State Prison, and he died of a heroin overdose. He had picked up a heroin habit years ago, and he was basically, I don't like to use the word junkie for people, unless you're in rehab, you know, but he was a stone-cold junkie that would seem at the end, and believe me, nobody was crying about losing him. Maybe Stephen Flemmy and his mom, but that's about it. He was a stone-cold killer. So on to Joe Barbosa. Joe Barbosa was also a serial killer, basically, as they all seem to be. He had killed, they say, 26 people. These are some of the people I've come across that he had murdered. He had killed members of the McLaughlin crew pertaining to that Irish gang war. He had killed Eddie McLaughlin and the Hughes brothers, Stevie Hughes and Cornelius Hughes, and they were fighting with Winter Hill, and I believe those guys were out of Charlestown. But Barbosa killed those guys, and he went on to work directly for Raymond Patriarca, and I think that's actually what did him in, because he thought he was basically becoming a member of La Casa Nostra, and I think they let him on. They gave him contract killing after contract killing, and he was proficient in it, you know? So he thought he was a more high-ranking official in the mob than he was. And at that point, he had left the Providence area and was stationed in Boston and Chelsea, Massachusetts. By 1966, though, Barbosa was on the outs with the mob in Boston, both Irish and Italian. Several people had taken shots at him. One was outside his residence in Chelsea, and then another one, I think, in the North End. But the FBI approaches him after the Deegan murder, saying, you know, basically, we're going to put you in the electric chair. He decides to turn informant at that point. He gets convicted in the Eddie Deegan case, but he only gets a year in prison. And after the year, believe it or not, Joe Barbosa becomes the first participant in the federal witness protection program. They move him out to Los Angeles. He immediately goes back into the rackets out there 
and commits a homicide in 1971. But earlier in 66, Barbosa gets arrested, and I think this was all sets it off with him thinking about becoming an informant. In 66, he gets pinched driving around Boston's combat zone with guns in the car. It later turned out that the La Casa Nostra actually told the Boston police what was going on. I think they were looking for someone to kill within the combat zone. But everybody else gets bail, but because of Barbosa's criminal history, they set bail at $100,000 for him, and he can't come up with it. And he expected members of Providence, La Costa Nostra, to come down to Boston and pay this bail, and, and he'd be on his way. They didn't do that. And a couple of his associates, Brastos and DePrisco, were going around to loan sharks and all this, trying to collect money to get Barbosa out of jail. And they did. They collected about 60, 70 grand. I've heard estimates as high as 80 grand. And they go to the Nightlight, a cafe owned by Organized Crime in Boston. And Organized Crime in Boston shoots those two guys, DePrisco and Brastos, in the head, dump them in the car, and they steal the 60 grand. Among thieves, right? Honor among thieves. And then... Italian members of La Casa Nostra dump the body in my hometown of South Boston so they can blame the Irish gangsters and the Irish gang wars that were just heating up. But everybody kind of saw through it. So that seems to solidify Barbosa's decision to go to the FBI to become a top echelon informant because they were going to kill him. Barbosa goes on to testify against Patriarca Tamiello in a separate case, a murder of another bookie down in Providence. And then he testified against Angelo, right? And they pulled the jury after Angelo's case because Angelo beat that murder rap. He said the jurors had said that nobody believed Joe Barbosa and the jurors couldn't believe that the government put him on the stand. So... After the Teddy Deegan setup, Barbosa goes into the witness protection program and they put him under the name Joseph Bentley. They relocated him to California right near San Francisco. I think it was actually Santa Rosa, California. He enrolled in and excelled at a culinary school there and was doing pretty well, but he couldn't handle not being in the rackets. And sometime in the summer of 1970, Barbosa. Well, in the witness protection program, murdered a guy by the name of Clay Wilson. Imagine that the first participant in the witness protection program commits a homicide. Unbelievable. So all the while that Barbosa was in witness protection, the mob in New England was looking for him. And you want to know what? They found him. They found him just outside of San Francisco. He had been palling around with a former South Boston hoodlum by the name of James Chalmers. And they say Chalmers is believed, and I haven't seen confirmation of it, but they believe Chalmers had tipped off Jerry and Julo about the location of Barbosa. Barbosa is living in a $250 a month apartment under the name Joseph Donati. It is believed that this guy, Chalmers, had set up Barbosa for this hit. 
So on February 11th, 1976, Barbosa's leaving Chalmers' apartment, who lived in San Francisco proper. But as he was walking to his car, Barbosa's walking to the car, he's reported to be hit by four shotgun blasts at close range to the point where he's almost cut in half. And this was the only ending that was ever going to happen for Joe Barbosa. They say this guy killed more than 26 people, if you can imagine that. And that's the serial killer, right, that the government wants to get involved with as a witness or an informant. It would later come to light that a local gangster, a pretty hard gangster out of the North End by the name of J.R. Russo, I think he was out of Revere, had been dispatched by Jerry Angiulo and Ayanaro Zanino, who was like the capo of the North End, dispatched J.R. Russo to San Francisco, and Chalmers gave that tip that he'd be leaving the house or whatever. And J.R. Russo took care of business, and that was the end of Joe Barbosa, and believe me, nobody was crying. One of Barbosa's attorneys was F. Lee Bailey. Before he became famous, he was a great attorney in Boston, O.J. Simpson fame and all that. He said regarding Barbosa's death, with all due respect to my former client, I don't think society has suffered a great loss. And that's probably the understatement of the decade there, right? And so when that happened in 76, the Boston underworld was gleeful because Bob Bosa had dirt on a crap ton of people. And now it went up in smoke with Bob Bosa himself. So I think I neglected to tell you guys, when he killed that guy in Santa Rosa, Clay Wilson, that brings him out of the witness protection program. And he kills Clay Wilson, and he pleads guilty to a second-degree homicide charge, and he's only sentenced to five years. So in that interim, he had served five years or so. Now, actually, he didn't serve that long. I think he only served about a year and a half before he was out, and then he was killed in 76. So I guess Clay Wilson wasn't much of a stand-up guy in terms of a victim. Because, man, he didn't do much time over that at all. And he committed the murder while he was on the FBI witness protection program, right? So, man, it's all just insane. All right, before we close the chapter on Mr. Barbosa, I just wanted to give you a feel for how much the mob hated him in Boston. They were irate to the point where in 1968... His lawyer, Barbosa's lawyer, John Fitzgerald, was getting into his car and members of the Winter Hill Gang, the mob, somebody put a bomb in his car and it blew his leg off, the lawyer's leg off, Fitzgerald's leg off at the knee and obviously never the same again. And man, that takes a lot of chutzpah to try to kill a guy's attorney. And it came out later, guys that the person who planted that bomb was Stephen Flemmy, who by that point was a top echelon informant for the FBI. How about that? It all comes full circle. Fitzgerald survived and eventually fled Boston. I don't blame him. He went somewhere out west or Midwest and ended up becoming a judge, a pretty well-respected district court judge. 
so that's the story of the Deegan murder, right? That I think illustrates how corrupt the Boston FBI was here. We're going to continue on this for one more episode. And in that episode, I'm going to take you up from John Conley, John Morris, Stevie Fleming, Whitey Bulger. And I'll take you up from that time to more recent times with FBI corruption, not just in Boston, but nationally. And I'm sorry if your head's spinning with all these names. It's a convoluted story, but I just wanted to give you the flavor of the complete corruption of the FBI in Boston. So I think I did that. Give me an email if you can. Let me know if you like these few episodes. It kind of makes me long for a longer format podcast like this. We can really delve in the subjects and I'm enjoying it and I hope you are as well. But if you're looking to do some more reading on it, here's a couple of books. I've read all these books and these are by Howie Carr. He's a former reporter for the Boston Herald and a local talk show host. He's actually a legend in the area and he's a font of information for all of this FBI corruption and the Boston underworld. He wrote the Brothers Bulger Rifleman, which was about Stephen Rifleman Flemmy, and Hitman, which was about John Monterano. And there's also a book that kind of started the media book and movie frenzy and all of this. And that is Black Mass. And that was by Boston Globe reporters Dick Lair and Gerard O'Neill. And that's excellent as well. I'd also throw in Michelle McPhee's book, and that book is entitled Mayhem, Unanswered Questions About the Zanea Brothers, the U.S. Government, and the Boston Marathon Bombing. And again, I think I had stated this previously, I don't want to give away the ending to this, but here it is. The U.S. government she's talking about, it's the FBI. So I think that's all I have for you on this one right now. It's just astounding the level of corruption that the city of Boston had to go through. But in the next episode, I'm going to tell you where we are nationally right now with the FBI. And it's not a good place. They are wholly unaccountable. They give the finger to the local police, the state police, and Congress. And when they give the finger to Congress, guys, they're actually giving the finger to you because those are your elected representatives. And I don't want to give away too much of the next episode, but the FBI has been acting as a Praetorian guard for one political party here. I've said this before, if you're a member of that party, that shouldn't make you feel good. Yeah, they may have went after somebody you didn't agree with, but next time it could be you, right? You could be the next Joe Salvati. All right, guys, I'll try to put those books up on the show notes and other than that, I think that's all I have for you. All right, I'll get on to the next one, and I'll see you on the flip side. Take care.